you could also just hold it. I could just hold it, I guess. Hello. Go for as long as this lasts. You can feel like a rock star. I may just hold it. Mark is so smart. Hi. My name is Sharon Salzberg, and I live here practicing mindfulness. Um, uh, I uh, have been here since the beginning of this place as a retreat center. And uh, what are we in now? Our 41st year, our 42nd year, something like that? Um, Time goes by. It's kind of amazing. And I'd like to really welcome you. We have only a few retreats a year that are so um, dedicated to the practice of loving kindness, although we will here as well be weaving in the skills of mindfulness and, and so on, which I'll talk about in a little while. But I just wanted the chance for all of my uh, friends and colleagues here to introduce themselves as well. So hello. <gasps> Can you hear me okay? Great. My name is Oren Sofer. Uh, I grew up here on the East Coast in New Jersey, and uh, I live out in California right now in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, it's a great joy to be here back at IMS. I've done a lot of my practice here, and so really, really happy to be here and share the time and the practice together with you. Hi, uh, my name is Tanya Welsh. I live in Brooklyn, New York. And I'll be offering the optional yoga movement um, over the next couple of days. And I'm really happy to be here at IMS. It's my first time teaching here. Mm-hmm. Hello, good evening. My name is Mark Coleman. Very happy to be back here at IMS. I think I skipped a year last year, but I don't know, probably taught at least 10 years of meta retreats here with Sharon and others. and. So lovely to be back. I'm glad we have some warm weather. We moved the Meta Retreat a couple of years ago from February, which was always snowy and cold, to spring. So very beautiful to be here. I'm based out in California. I'm very closely connected with Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and so do a lot of my Dharma teaching, retreat teaching there, and also do a lot of my retreat teaching out there in the wild. It's one of my favorite places to lead retreats is in the wilderness and um, but I love this practice and I really enjoy these retreats and so look forward to getting to know you over this next uh, week or more of practice together so thank you for being here thank you for your practice so before we dive into a little more orientation around uh, the retreat um, we'd like to have you reflect a little about why it is that you're here. You know, we come to retreats for all kinds of reasons, often because there's a gap in our schedule and we want to do something. But you could have gone to the Bahamas or you're for Hawaii, but you're here. So something drew you about meditation, about the power of loving kindness, about the beauty of retreat and silence and community and this land and perhaps these teachers. So um, it's helpful to reflect at the beginning of a practice period, what's our deepest intention? What is our aspiration or wish that we wish to uh, 
uh, arise in this and through this practice. So I'm going to have you uh, turn to uh, someone next to you in a second. Partly we're also doing this just as a way to get to know um, at least one or two of the people sitting uh, beside you. Uh, we are going into silence. I hope you all know this is a silent retreat. Some people show up not knowing that. It's always a surprise, a bit of a shock. Um, so it's nice to have at least some connection if you haven't had connection during the meal or orientation. So um, I'm going to share this piece of uh, kind of a, from a text where it says, if I can remember it, I can't remember it. <laughs> I can't remember the first line, but it goes on to say, um, I'm going to totally butcher this one. <laughs> Deep inside the heart lies a summons. Name it, if you must. Na- name it if you must, or leave it forever nameless. But why pretend it is not there? What pulls on the heart when the meetings are adjourned, the lists are laid aside, and the wild iris blooms by itself in the dark forest. What pulls on the heart? So perhaps one of the reasons you're here is to explore what is happening in the domain of the heart. So I'm going to invite you just to turn to the person you're sitting next to or behind you. We'll take a couple of minutes just to informally introduce yourself and also uh, say, what brings you to retreat at this time? What are your aspirations for your practice? So turning to either one person or two people, and I'll ring a bell to bring us back.
So wrapping up your conversation, thanking your partner, I'm just always curious to hear just one or two words, what brings you here in a sentence, anybody just like to shout out, maybe one word, what inspires you to be here? Sharon. <laughs> I imagine that's why a lot of you are here. Thank you. Wisdom and the world needs meta. Yes. The world needs loving kindness. Peace. Uh-huh. Inner peace, outer peace. Compassion. Compassion. Mm-hmm. Cultivating compassion. The ripple effect. Uh huh. The ripple effect of the practice going out into the world. Concentration. Concentration. Yeah, it's a beautiful integrating and harmonizing of the mind practice. Equanimity and acceptance. Equanimity and acceptance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Releasing fear. Releasing fear. Yeah, that is a very powerful way to work with fear. Sweetness. Sweetness. There'll be plenty of sweetness. Maybe, who knows, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good. All right. Well, we'll uh, be sharing some words about the retreat and then we'll be going into silence. So that was your last precious words for a week. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That was it. Would you have been different if you knew that was it? <laughs> no, it's, it's a tremendous delight to welcome all of you here. I don't know what kinds of adventures any of you got up to in getting here. Sometimes it's a big ordeal. Sometimes it goes kind of smoothly. But uh, even if it's kind of smooth in terms of physical energy, um, it's always something, right? Kind of letting go of... Uh, normal stimulation, even normal sources of agitation can be hard to let go of, (laughs) and coming to this completely different kind of place. How many of you are new to a silent retreat? Okay. One of the things that I've I've seen um, in the course of so many years of teaching is how many people come, and very often the single greatest source of trepidation is actually silence, 
I wouldn't say that was so for me. The thing I was really freaked out about was not having things to read. And so, like many people, I'm the kind of person who would tend to stand in front of that bulletin board <laughs> and read it and read it again and read it again and read it again and read it again. Uh, but there is a kind of widespread anxiety about silence often, and people come and they say, I don't think I can be silent, or my partner doesn't think I can be silent, and one person came and said they're doing a bedding pool in my office, they don't think I can be silent <laughs> for like two days, three days, seven days, whatever it might be. And almost always at the end, it's one of the singular factors that people look back on as just having been wonderful. It's like for once in our lives, we can just be ourselves. And we don't have to present ourselves as interesting or witty or anything. We can just be with our own experience. So how great is that? But for everybody, I would say, whether you're doing this for the first time or the 50th time or the 500th time, there tends to be a kind of period of adjustment in the beginning. Few of us live lives of that much quiet or um, slowing down, really. And it takes a little while. Fortunately, we have seven days here, right? So there's time to kind of really fully arrive, and then there's time to get ready to leave, and this amazing period in between of actually being here. Uh, so I say all that in the hopes that you don't feel dismay um, if you have a, an adjustment period. I, too, 46 years later, have an adjustment period. I think it may even be 47. I hope not. I think it's 46. Um, you know, uh, if I go into retreat, I feel in the beginning there are like these two voices inside my mind. One voice says, oh, there's nothing happening here. Let's take a nap. And so even if I slept for like 15 hours the night before, I sit down to meditate and I conk out. And the other voice says, oh, there's nothing happening here. Let's make something happen. <laughs> you know, in this torrent of thinking and planning and creating and designing and like whatever. And that's just expected, especially in the beginning, we can have kind of wild careening from sleepiness to restlessness and sleepiness to restlessness. Which is not to say that as time goes on, there will be no sleepiness or no restlessness but that kind of intense swing um, tends to be most predominant in the beginning. And it's not a problem. It's just that adjustment, right? And what is much more of a problem is believing the thought which tends to come up in our minds like, oh no, six more days, exactly like this. <laughs> or every time I meditate for the rest of my life, I'll get sleepy. So it's that habit of taking an unpleasant or difficult experience in the moment, projecting it into a seemingly unchanging future, trying to bear it all at once, feeling overcome, feeling defeated. That's the problem. But seeing that tendency, tendency tends to be a really great thing. Because it's not just sitting in a funny posture on a floor somewhere or in a chair in a silent retreat that we have those tendencies. We have, all of us, lives of pleasure and pain and neutrality, and we go up and we go down, and things are exhilarating and wondrous and amazing, and they're difficult and challenging, and sometimes they're boring, and you know it's routine, it's repetitive, and 
Um, that's kind of the texture, the flavor of life. Always changing. Actually, always out of our control. So, in the meditative process, it's not like we're imagining, oh, that's going to f- stop. You know, everything's going to flatten out. Either everything's going to flatten out into this gray kind of amorphous blob where there won't be any highs, but that's okay, there won't be any lows. Or we imagine I'll just go up and up and up and up and then I'll just be, I'll plateau at some extraordinary level. Ooh, (laughs) see? I'll plateau at some extraordinary level where, uh, you know, it's indescribable. The combination of peace and bliss that I now abide in. Never a thought in my head. Um, never an unpleasant or difficult emotion, you know. So whatever our imagination tells us is the result of meditation practice. If it tends toward one of those two, it's just not so. So we practice not to kind of flatten out or to get blank minds or uh, to get a kind of steady state of uh kind of delivered joy or pleasure, because that's not life. We practice to develop, in many cases, a really radically different relationship to everything that comes our way. To experience joy and wonder and delight, first of all, to experience it without being so distracted, we don't even notice it. And to experience it as it is, not in a comparative mode like... Yeah, it was all right. It would have been better if I'd had a different room there, you know. <laughs> or, you know, whatever. Or it's not as good as what they had. I know they were in bliss. And to be able to take in and, and to feel without the almost inevitable clinging of, of, the almost inevitable conditioning of clinging. How do I keep it? How do I keep it from ever changing? Which becomes just fear. So we actually learn how to enjoy delight and and pleasure in a very different way. And we learn to experience pain in a very different way. Um, You know, certainly uh, between our individual conditioning, perhaps our cultural conditioning, in many cases, you know, there's a tremendous load that goes on top of either physical pain or emotional pain uh, that we may be experiencing. It's wrong, it's bad shouldn't happen, I should have gotten rid of it long ago, Um, it's shameful, it's a disgrace, my pain is a disgrace, your pain is a disgrace, go away, you know, whatever it might be. And so we learn to kind of peel away those layers of reaction to see our experience more directly as it is and experience uh, when it is uncomfortable or not what we would have ordered if someone gave us a menu. Um experience it differently with a great deal of presence and compassion and sense of connection to others rather than in so much isolation. And we learn to experience neutral times differently too, the sort of ordinary, just a breath, routine, repetitive times where we tend to be half asleep or, um, you know, numbing out, waiting for the next great intense thing to happen so we can wake up and feel alive, we can actually feel alive right then if we connect more fully to what is. And so the whole training of the meditative process is about relationship. 
changing our relationship to what is. We do that through the cultivation of mindfulness, which we're going to begin this retreat emphasizing tonight and through tomorrow. And we do that through the cultivation of metta, M-E-T-T-A, or loving kindness, and view that came in the front door, so or metta up on the, uh, you know, the building. Um, it, metta, as you probably know, is a word in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text. The common translation is loving kindness. I find that somewhat problematic in that it's such an odd term, right? Like, um, you so rarely overhear a conversation where people are talking about loving kindness, unless you're here, you know, or someplace like here. So my concern is that that might make the quality itself seem somewhat arcane or uh, precious in the negative sense of the word or removed from day-to-day life, which it's not. Some scholars have said to me, why don't you just say love? You know, like, you're so timid. Like, just say love. That's what you mean. And that, of course, is very complicated because we mean so many different things when we say love. Like, what does that mean? The literal translation of the word metta is friendship. I'm actually finding that a little complicated these days, too, because... In my mind, friendship implies, you know, hanging out together or wanting to spend time together or inviting someone over to dinner or something like that. And I really believe and actually know that you can have a heart full of metta, which means inclusion and recognition, without feeling at all that it's wise to spend time together. You know, it's like, we know there's such a thing as tough love or fierce compassion, right? So the manifestation of the genuine feeling we have within may not be, yeah, let me give you more money, you know, or uh, let's hang out at all. So we're talking about a state of inclusion, of, um, it's like a worldview, it's a state of being. I don't even really usually call it a feeling, which I just did a few minutes ago. Um, I don't actually believe it's a feeling in the narrow sense of the word, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But it is a way of relating that is different. So the word I tend to use myself these days is connecting. It's a state of pure connection. And um, that might not have the emotional resonance we're looking for, but I think it's what it actually is. Sometimes there is a very emotional um, tone to it, and sometimes it just isn't. But there's a knowing that our lives have something to do with one another, that our lives are intertwined, that everybody actually wants to be happy, that we all want a sense of belonging. In a way, we kind of all deserve that. It said that we all want to be happy, and... That's right, that's correct. That's not something to feel timid about, but we get so confused about where genuine happiness lies and we're told so many things about what we need and what's real. And we use an opportunity of a time like retreat or a time of great introspection to just examine, is that so? You know, it's like that nearly endless 
focus on vengefulness, does that really make me strong? My ninth billionth hour of thinking about somebody's faults? Um, Does compassion really make me weak? Is it really that sentimental and saccharine? Is it really? Let's take a look. Am I really as alone as I might have thought? Maybe not. Maybe it is an interconnected universe after all. So we come here together, especially around loving-kindness practice, to cultivate a quality of attention and relationship that may challenge some old assumptions, but that really frees us uh, to have a very different kind of way of being with ourselves and with others. And um, going back to what I kind of started with, in the course of the retreat, everything will happen. The joys and the sorrows, and you know, just don't think you're failing, because you cannot fail. Uh, we have all kinds of experiences, and we learn to be with them and appreciate them and learn from them and let them go and move on to the next thing and um, in a way create a, a model of a very different kind of life. Not that we're suggesting you leave and never talk to anybody again or you know have like a yogi job or whatever it is. But uh, you know, So it's not the, the details, but it's more the heart space of understanding that we can be together in a different way. We can respect ourselves and respect others at the same time. And um, it's really kind of this wild experiment in uh, both going within and, and being together. So um, it's its own kind of fun in a, a really different sort of way. So I guess the last thing I'll say is really have fun while you're here. So good evening again, and I want to add my uh, heartfelt welcome to each of you. It's uh, it's a very unusual and beautiful thing to me to uh, get together like this and share time with people interested in changing their relationship to life and what Sharon was was pointing to changing our relationship to what's happening to one of wakefulness and kindness and care so just uh, I want to just celebrate and and honor that that uh, whatever's bringing you here whatever's bringing us together that there's some uh, some common intention to shift our inner way of being. So it's, it's a delight to join you in that. I want to talk a little bit about some of the supports that we have for that journey, for that transformation. And obviously there's the uh, wonderful external supports of being here at IMS. There's the staff, the beauty of our surroundings, um, the physical space. So everything here at IMS is designed to give us the space uh, to go inside and be with our experience in a very clear way, to actually learn 
from what's happening so that we're not having to drop the kids off at school or go grocery shopping or make dinner or answer emails or all of the things that are part of our lives day to day, that we can put all of that down and really just focus on the cultivation of the heart. So these are some of the external supports that we have. There's some very uh, powerful internal supports for the practice that can be a real foundation and a real strength for the inevitable ups and downs and challenges that will come this week. Like Sharon said, you know, you will experience everything in the course of this week, the joy and the sorrow, the delight and the confusion and the frustration. And so as we're moving through these various terrains, it can be helpful to have a basis inside. And so these are traditionally the framework or the structure for meditation practice and spiritual practice in the Buddhist tradition. So I want to talk about the three refuges or the three jewels and the five precepts that form kind of an essential support and structure for the practice. So many of you might be familiar with with these. And uh, for me, I always love hearing and reflecting on them because it, it, it tends to uplift my heart. Uh, so the three refuges are the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And I'll say just a few words about each of them and a little bit about what we mean by, by refuge. Uh, and then uh, invite you to join me in a ritual of kind of aligning our intentions and actively engaging with these supports for our practice. So refuge. Just what happens when you hear that word? I know for me, something relaxes inside, you know? IMS itself is a refuge of sorts, a physical refuge for many. And so these are not refuges on the physical plane. These are refuges that are within us. And, and refuge as a place of shelter, a place of safety. The word in Pali actually, uh, sarana, uh, the etymology literally means something like the result of having gone somewhere and stayed there. So there's that sense of rest, that we can rest there. And what are the things that we normally turn to in our life for refuge? What are the places that we normally uh, hold on to for safety, for shelter? Whether it's our job or our house or apartment or relationship or our work or physical uh, comfort, pleasure, experiences, all of these things that can bring some measure of security or comfort, but as we all know, are ultimately not in our control, not reliable, subject to change. So these refuges are, because they're within us, are more reliable. It's something that we can depend on. So the first is the the refuge of the Buddha. What does this mean? Does this mean um, this particular bronze statue behind us? 
Does it mean the person who lived 2,600 years ago, who had such a profound awakening and understanding of being human that it's still affecting us today? For some people, that's part of it, actually recognizing some sense of gratitude or admiration or awe that a human being who walked this planet just as you and I do, who had a mother and a father and got sick and got old, was able to transform his own consciousness so deeply that the effects have rippled out for generations. But more than that, the refuge of the Buddha points to what what the Buddha actually realized. And that word Buddha literally means one who is awake. So the refuge of the Buddha is a refuge in our own wakefulness, our own awareness. So the quality of awareness that's present in each of our hearts and minds and the potential for deepening into that, for actually opening to the fullness of what it is to be a human being. So this is the refuge in Buddha, in wakefulness and awareness and our potential, all of the qualities that we can cultivate in that process. The refuge of the Dharma or the Dhamma on one level is the teachings that have been offered, this actual path of practice that has been well walked for millennia. But more than that, the Dhamma means the way things are. So the natural order of things, the, 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 the law, sometimes it's translated as nature or the way. And this is quite radical. This is a shift from how we normally orient to things, from taking refuge in getting our way, having things be the way we want them to, versus taking refuge in the reality of the way things are, which is that they're lawful. And that means that we can actually steer in our lives. That through awareness and intention, we can shape our lives. Because the universe is lawful. Because there is a relationship between our actions and the results of our actions. That we have the potential to be kind, to be aware, to be loving, to wake up. So this is the refuge in the Dharma in the natural order of things that we are intimately part of that's not separate from us. And to say that we turn towards the truth of things to learn rather than turning away to our ideas or beliefs about what what should be. The last refuge is the refuge in the Sangha, which means the community. And so this is understood in many different ways. The community of um, people who have walked this path before us and realized some level of its, uh, of its goal, of its fruit, some level of awakening. The Sangha means the community of practitioners around the world and through the generations that we're connected to through our own efforts to practice. It also means all of us sitting here together in this room, this particular community that is forming tonight for these next seven days to practice. It'd be very difficult to do this seven-day retreat all by oneself. Yeah? 
So there's a support, there's a refuge in that sense of togetherness, that sense of community, that we are not, even as we each must do this practice for ourselves, we don't do it alone. We are connected to one another and we are connected to so many other beings who have walked this path before us. And so that's a support that we can carry within us. So these three sources of safety, shelter, rest, and support within us that we can align our hearts with, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So what I'd like to do is to invite you to join me in uh, a short ritual of actually giving voice to our intention to align our hearts with these supports. Um, this is optional, it's not, uh, it's, there's no obligation. Um, I'll, I'll, we'll do this in, in the original Pali, in a call and response uh, chant. And uh, you can also feel free to just listen or to connect with the, the meaning or the quality of each of these refuges in your own heart silently. Right? The idea here is that we're aligning our intention and saying, I recognize the supports available for me and I'm, I'm, I'm taking it up. And that vocalization can tend to have a strengthening effect or an amplifying effect to that intention. Chanting is a very ancient practice. And so it gives voice to what's within the heart and the mind. So uh, we'll chant it three times. Uh, we'll chant, I'll chant the melody phrase by phrase. And then as we get going and you catch on, then we'll just chant it all together. Uh, if you like, you can put your hands together over the center of your chest. We're not praying to anyone or anything. This is a, a very universal mudra. If, you, uh, if you're not familiar with doing this, I invite you to just try it out and see how it actually feels in your body. What's it like for the palms and the fingers to be touching in front of the heart center for your nervous system? I know for me it has a very calming and centering effect. It sort of brings, brings kind of a certain focus in the mind. And so it's, it's, it's another, it's a physical alignment as much as the, the chanting is uh, an inner alignment of our intention. Buddhang Saranang Gachami Dhammang Saranang Gachami Sanghang Saranang Gachami Dutiampi Buddhang Saranang Gachami Dhammang 
Saranangachami. Sanghang Sarananga Chami All together Buddhang Sarananga Chami Dhammang saranangachami Sanghang saranangachami So may these three refuges be with you as a support during these days and beyond. There's one more set of essential supports that are a foundation for our practice that I want to share. And these are the five precepts, uh, sometimes called the five mindfulness trainings, because they're really about learning rather than about uh, a commandment or a should. And these, these, uh, these trainings are the foundation of our practice in the sense that they provide the ground for learning and exploring the terrain of the heart and the mind. The, uh, the Buddha said that these five trainings, the purpose of them is for our own well-being, for our welfare and for the welfare of others. And these are really the expression of the values of awareness and kindness. It's the expression in our life of the desire to not cause harm. And this is about the sort of container for our community, how we can be together while we're here. And then it also provides a container for our own heart so that we're not caught up in the entanglements of regret or remorse, or should I have done that? Or shouldn't I have done that while we're here that we can put those things aside and actually have a basis of clarity and integrity for the practice. And this is why the, the, the training in ethics is the foundation for any contemplative path, for any spiritual development, is that it provides a sense of uh, upliftment and well-being from within when we're not ca causing harm for ourselves or others. So the five um, Mindfulness trainings or precepts are to not take the life of living creatures, to not kill, to not steal, or to not take that which is not given, uh, to not cause harm with our sexual energy, 
which in the context of this retreat means maintaining celibacy. So not engaging in any intentional sexual activity and even being careful with uh, the sexual energy that's in our body in terms of how we move around in the space, how we look at one another or not. So really that sense of containment. There's There's nothing wrong with sexuality. There's nothing evil about it, but it's a powerful energy. And so the idea here is that rather than acting on that energy in any way, we're studying it. We're pulling back from that impulse to learn and cultivate something else. Then the fourth training is around speech. Uh, And uh, to, to refrain from causing harm with our speech. And in the context of this retreat, that refers to what we call noble silence. So that we're not not only speaking with one another, but as Sharon was referring to, not reading, also not writing. Uh, And this helps to support the quiet of the mind. We're continually stimulated in our life by information, by conversation. And so we're putting that down for these next seven days to focus on studying our experience rather than continually trying to manipulate or, or uh, twist it to our will, but instead studying it as it is to see what we can learn from it and if we can cultivate a different relationship in our hearts. So this training around noble silence also extends to electronic communication. And, uh, this is one of the both great wonders and gifts of the modern era and one of the uh, complexities and even addictions in ways. You know, there have been some studies that have, that have been done that, that actually document and show that the very behavior of many of uh, the applications and programs that we use um, have a reward system that's like a slot machine. It's an unpredictable reward that that breeds an addictive kind of response. And so in terms of the cultivation of awareness and strengthening uh, the qualities of concentration and kindness and presence, if you're on your cell phone, it ain't going to happen. Or it's just going to make it that much harder of an uphill uphill ride. So... um, we feel so strongly about this that uh, we want to support you to have um, the most nourishing experience you can here and to be able to engage with this practice as fully as possible. And so um, tomorrow morning, uh, I'll invite you to participate in a little ceremony where you can actually relinquish your device. If you brought a cell phone or a tablet or even a laptop that you can uh, hand it over and be free from the temptation to distraction, to check. Oh, I'll just check, I'll just send that one text message. To actually just put that down. And we keep them in a safe in the office, they're locked up. Um, you'll write your name on it, put it in a sealed envelope, and then at the end of the retreat, you can, uh, you can receive it. And just as Sharon was saying that one of the things that's the most sort of uncomfortable sometimes at the beginning of the retreat, of the silence that's often a gift at the end, is can be a similar relationship with one's technology, that it can be, feel kind of a little unsteady or nervous to, to let it go. But then when you do, you'll, you might find that at the end of the retreat, 
there's a little bit of that nervousness of, I don't know if I want, you know, how is it going to be to take this back again? So these uh, have become such a strong part of our daily life. Uh, I really encourage and invite you to experiment with what it would be like to let it go. And then the last training is to refrain from taking intoxicants and alcohol that cloud the mind. This practice is about clarity. So we're putting those down. And obviously that doesn't include uh, prescription medication that you might take. That's, that's uh, um, not what this precept is referring to. So um, I'll say each of these aloud uh, in English and you can either repeat them aloud uh, or just silently take them uh, inwardly. I undertake the training to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm with sexual energy. I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech patterns. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drink and drugs which lead to carelessness. So thank you. May these five trainings be a support to you these next seven days. So I just want to say, add a few words and then we'll sit together and then go to sleep. I'm sure you're, many of you are longing for that horizontal nirvanic posture. Um, you know, I was listening to these very eloquently described precepts and uh, I was taking a walk with a friend today and walking past this puddle uh, in the woods and all of a sudden as we walked by, these uh, frogs would dart into the water and, and sink themselves into the mud to get away from us scary two-leggeds. And I thought it was such a beautiful... Uh, moment of feeling how tender and fragile life is, right? how we're all trying to survive, trying to flee from suffering, find safety, well-being, happiness. Right? For that little frog, it was a little muddy part of the bank of that puddle. Right? And for us, it may be who knows how it manifests. And I think partly what we're doing here in the meta practice, the loving-kindness practice, is we're cultivating a certain attitude. And we spoke to a little bit, a certain relationship to this moment, to ourselves, to our bodies, to our struggles, to the fragility of life. I was visiting a friend in hospital recently who incredibly young, not young, incredibly uh, fit and healthy uh, man, dear friend of mine, 
who was struck down with Parkinson's some years ago and he's been struggling with that. And then he also had a rare blood disease and had a 11 pound spleen that got removed. And then he had unprecedented blood platelet count, red blood platelet count. And um, just tremendous complicated medical conditions as I'm sure you've experienced at times with friends and family. And it was really touching to see um, how he was learning to relate to that um, and find uh, balance or presence in the middle of that. And what was also touching was one of the hardest things for him to go through was how much love and care he received from his friends, from his family, from the people who showed up, from the nurses and doctors who were caring for what it was a very complicated case. And again, it just struck me of, um, we're invited over and over to show up to our life experience and we never know what we're gonna get. It may be beautiful. You know, I was stuck at this sort of mild drama of flying out from San Francisco. I had two mechanical failures in two planes and it was one of those just nightmarish flying episodes. And so definitely equanimity practice. Fly United, it will be an equanimity practice. And, and yet, um, and I was chatting with uh, one of the, the, the people on the counter who was obviously getting a lot of harassment from people because it was very frustrating. It took him three hours to change a tire. And it was the slowest tire change I've ever seen in history. And, uh, and so we were chatting and I was trying to find a different flight to get to. I had a meeting in New York before coming here to meet Sharon. And, um, and he said, he said, well, you're really good natured. Um, <laughs> I said, well, it's not your fault. <laughs> and it was just a nice reflection of, you know, when we're present and when we have certain uh, capacity, whether it's cultivating awareness, kindness, presence, ultimately we learn how to show up for ourselves and each other in life with more care, with more tenderness, with more kindness with more appreciating the preciousness and the fragility and the vulnerability of this moment. So my wish for you in the practice is as we cultivate awareness, as we cultivate warmth, friendliness, kindness, love, whatever word you use is not so important as the, this heart's intention to show up with care, with kindness. And so, you know, Sharon was pointing to the, you will, this will, experience will be like your life, right? We think, oh, I've left home, I've left work, I've left the kids, I've left whatever dramas, and I have this week of, you know, I'm sure some of you imagine you'll be floating through the clouds of love and kindness and compassion. It's just going to be a dreamy breeze, right? Well, may that be so. <laughs> Most likely, it will be like your life. <laughs> because you will be living how you live in your life. Whether that's kindly or you know, drivenly or with conflict or with striving or antagonism or self-hatred or whatever, whatever it is that's moving through you in your life will be here. And so we're invited to be in this distractionless place for the most part and to see if we can meet ourselves, meet our heart, meet our bodies, meet whatever dramas arise with kind-heartedness, which sounds really simple. 
And it's one of the hardest things that we can do. To just be present to, maybe you're feeling really hot and sweaty and sticky and you can't wait to go and have a shower. Well, we're gonna meditate, so you can't. (laughs) How do you show up and just soften into that? Or maybe your knees burning or your back's aching or you're feeling incredibly hyperglycemic or whatever it is. Can we bring a tender presence to that? So I like that we're teaching mindfulness practice and developing that primarily tomorrow and then the rest of the retreat will be cultivating loving kindness. Because ultimately in our lives, in our practice, the, the two qualities that we most need and draw on the qualities that we integrate in this retreat, which is the qualities of awareness and the qualities of kindness, of love. So as we grow and and, and mature in our practice, hopefully we learn to live and abide with a warm presence, with a kind awareness, with a loving presence. Whatever words you use to describe this, this really essential quality. So I'm very happy that we're all here doing this. This is, as someone said, the world needs loving kindness. And of course, we're coming here, you know, in troubled times. Maybe they're always troubled. They seem a little heightened at the moment. And certainly in the last six months with the fallout from the election and, and the political divide and all of that's happening, you know, how much more apparent is it that we need wisdom? We need awareness. We need kindness. We need to uh, cut through the sense of separation and division. So I wish that we become meta-emissaries. That we take this practice out. But first we have to do the, the work. And this is definitely work. It's both joyful, it's delightful, it's sweet to be here, but it's also work. And we do this not just for ourselves, but for ever-widening circles of the people that we touch and the people that they touch. Be the peace that we want to see in the world. Be the change that we want to see. And it starts here in our own hearts, because we can blame and judge and all of that, what's happening politically or otherwise. And if we look closely, we see this also present in our own hearts. Okay, so enough words for tonight. Let's sit together. So you may need to change your posture. If you need to stand for a moment just to stretch your legs, please do. If you need to move to a chair, there's some spare chairs in the back. You want to be sitting in a way that's expressing kindness to your body. So you may think that, you know, sitting on the floor is like, you know, where it's happening with the meditation. As my first Vipassana teacher used to say, enlightenment is not dependent on the shape of your legs. So please, if sitting on the floor is not familiar to you, if it's already feeling painful right now, please make use of the chairs. That's why they're there or alternate during the day, give your knees a break, give your hips a break, give your back a break. And we'll say more about posture tomorrow, but for now, finding a posture where you can sit with ease, uprightness, and relaxation.
And either closing your eyes or lowering your gaze. And first simply attending to what's here, what's present in your experience in this moment. And can you bring this quality of invitation, of welcoming, of allowing whatever's here to be here? So in the very attitude in which you orient to your meditation, to this moment, it's infused with this quality of allowing, of welcoming, of friendliness. And bringing awareness to the body, aware of the posture, aware of the contact of the body with the ground. Aware of the sensations of sitting, warmth, coolness. Aware of the energy of the body, tired, energized, restless. The body in this moment is like this. And now like this. Simply knowing directly, intimately, feeling, sensing, this experience of the body, sitting, breathing, notice how the breath moves through you. What happens as the body inhales, chest expands, shoulders lift, Belly moves, air in the nostrils and the throat tickles. No need to do anything about your experience, simply be present. Kind attention. Mindfulness of body. Aware of the sounds, aware of silence between the sounds.
of the moods and emotions of the heart. How you feel in this moment sitting, starting the retreat. So including and allowing all of our experience to be here. Noticing the flickering of the mind, thoughts, images. Noticing when thinking takes us away from here, from this moment. And without judgment, caringly, we bring our attention here, reestablish awareness in this moment sitting and aware of sitting, breathing, aware of breathing, hearing, aware of hearing. No matter how quickly or easily the attention wanders, 
we return over and over with a spirit of kindness and begin again this moment, this breath, this body, and this heart. I'll ring the bell to end the meditation. But just because the bell ends doesn't mean to say you need to stop cultivating awareness, kindness. And although many of you are probably tired, some of you may feel energized and wish to continue sitting. So please do. Haiku from uh, Japanese poet Isa, who wrote, In the cherry blossom's shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. In the cherry blossom's shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. So here we are meditating with a hundred people, mostly probably strangers. But in the heart, we can also be like that cherry blossom shade. That offers generously that quality of warmth and care. And I trust that that will grow in these days, in the silence in our hearts. So um, it is bedtime, which I know some of you are very happy about. You've probably traveled a long way. Uh, So tomorrow morning, out of great compassion, um, there was no early morning meditation. So you get to sleep in. So uh, if I can remember the schedule, the we six six fifteen wake up and six forty five is breakfast. So um, that may not seem like much of a lie. Sleep in to some of you. I'm aware of like six fifteen. You're kidding. Well, believe me, it is <laughs> in this world. <laughs> so um, enjoy that very luxurious. Yes. And um, so in uh, the spirit of what uh, Oren was offering around um, renouncing cell phone use for a week, which I highly encourage because it, it's so tempting to just, as you said, just one text. I'll just... Mm. So well, if you bring your cell phones to the meditation tomorrow morning at 8.30, those who wish to um, renounce them for a, for a week, not for life, <laughs> we're not going to sell them on eBay yet, 
Um, but uh, very healthy and, ha- and use- interesting practice to just see what it's like to give that up. All right, folks. So very lovely to be with you. Sleep well. See you in the morning. Have a great retreat. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.